Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Around the World in 20 Minutes, where we begin to make sense of the beguiling new planet that we find ourselves on. And today has been frustrating already, community. Um, I have to tell you, we have two sets of workers in the house. Uh, my Italian is faulty at the best of times, and Sarah is off plying her trade, giving a series of wonderful speeches. And yes, my wife does that too, so that makes for a lot of fun. She's giving a, a speech uh, down in Rome for her bank. And so I'm here on my own with five cats, two sets of Italian workers trying to get things done. And predictably, my first effort to do this didn't work because they rang the doorbell, the joys of, um, of live radio. So if this goes wrong again or there's some sort of chaos in the background, I've decided, you know, we share things in the community warts and all. And so you're just going to have to make do with me today, and I apologize in advance. But a couple things happened, so we're spoiled for choice for Around the World in 20 Minutes this week. The first thing that's interesting is development in Ukraine, where basically Zelensky, President Volodymyr Zelensky, tried to fire his chief of staff, the realist and very popular General Valery Zeluzhny, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces. He tried to fire him. And then uh, this failed, um, and we'll talk about why and what this means and why this is important. And then also we have European predictably awful growth numbers that were happy talked away by those wishing Europe by the graveyard when really it's falling out of the sky. And I say this with no joy. Uh, it's falling out of the sky as a great power. It's the least of the great powers. Now, it was said that its numbers were stable. That meant it grew at nothing. Um, in the fourth quarter after minus 1% in the third quarter and 0.5% this year in 2020 or last year in 2023 to 2.5% for the United States. Uh, worse, over the last 15 years, Europe has grown by the only factoid you need know has grown by about 9%, the United States economy by 86%. So Europe has been flatlining now for almost a generation. And we have to talk about why, what this means and the diminution of European power, which I've seen in the 20 years I've lived here before my very eyes, and what this means and how we can try to support Europe, which is a natural ally for the United States. But first, we have to see things as they are, warts and all. We'll probably try to do an extra one on Friday on that before we move on to the zombies in the culture section. So tons to do, and so I thought I'd do one today. Because speaking of looking at the world as it is warts and all, this is the problem with President Zelensky, whose happy talk simply has to stop as it's now going to get in the way of winding down the tragedy of the Ukraine war. Uh, you negotiate from a position of strength. It's a basic realist operational idea. Things will never be better for Ukraine than they are today. And the happy talk of Zelensky that he's going to somehow reconquer every single kilometer of Ukrainian territory is utterly delusional and has to be stopped as it gets in the way of moving on with the rest of the world. I don't fault Zelensky, and we'll talk about this, for trying to co-opt the United States and Europe into doing what he wants. That's what weak powers do, and goodness knows Ukraine is a weak power. Barely democratic, oligarch-dominated, barely capitalistic with corruption, the beggar's description, and I know that from having been there for a good bit of time probably several months in total through the years. Um, I've stopped going there simply because I don't want to indulge in corruption. Um, there, are more, there are more interesting places to put, put money and, and, for, and, and to find um, outlets for opportunities for businesses. One thinks of Asia, Vietnam, uh, India, 
Mexico, much better chances out there to put money for friend shoring. So it's barely capitalistic, barely democratic and beset by invasion. I don't fault a country like that from wanting to bend uh, the West to its purposes. That's what small states do. And that's fine. I fault American decision makers for ignoring American national interests and allowing themselves to be co-opted by Zelensky's happy talk. But this happy talk is now threadbare, even in Ukraine itself. So what's going on? President Zelensky dismissed General Valery Zeluzhny, the commander-in-chief of Ukraine's armed forces, but was forced to immediately reverse his decision after pressure from both senior military officers and international partners such as the U.S. and the U.K. So he fired him and then was forced to reinstate him because no one would take his place within the military. That The military are squarely behind Zeluzhny, and the United States and the U.K. said it's a bad idea to get this quite able and realist military chief out the door simply because you're jealous of him, which is ultimately what this is about. Uh, more importantly, though, there's a more a structural problem that the armed forces um, in Ukraine and the political folks uh, have been, there's been tensions between them for a long while, and they're now, they, they've burst into the open with the personalization of this over Zeluzhny and, and Zelensky. Um, to some extent, this is normal, that, you know, as Graham Allison famously said, uh, in essence of dis his decision, his book about bureaucratic politics, uh, where you stand depends on where you sit. Um, if you're in the Defense Department, you look at things from a military point of view. If you're in the Treasury Department from a macro point of view, if you're in the State Department from a geopolitical point of view, or that's not even as true as they no longer matter. But if you're in the National Security Council from a geopolitical point of view, that that's normal and then reinforced by the place you work in. And so you have these differing opinions and that can be just fine within limits. But these limits have now been breached because around Zelensky, there's this happy talk that they're always um, more optimistic about what's going on than merits reality um, in an effort to get money. Because without getting money from Europe and an increasingly skeptical Europe, it's not just Viktor Orban, and an increasingly skeptical United States, it's the Congress and particularly my Republican Party. Um, without talking on the upside, they fear they're not going to get the money. On the other hand, if you're getting shot at, you want as realistic an assessment of what's going on as possible. So they're pulling in different directions, and this has burst into the open. And this is the beyond the envy and jealousy, which is part of the human condition. This is the underlying division between Zelensky and Zeluzhny. Evidently, Zeluzhny was summoned to a face-to-face -face meeting with Zelensky, where he told presidential advisors to their face that their assessments of the military situation were, to quote him, more positive than realistic, meaning that they're in essence lying. They're not, they're not reporting on what's happening to Zelensky in a realistic manner. And this also is a danger of being the president of anything, be it a company, um, something I worry about, or be it the president of a country, that you're surrounded by people whose imperatives are to keep you happy to tell you how great you are. I'm very lucky in that I have partners and John, good night, my able chief of staff, who are my friends, but also, and, and certainly care about me and say how great I am, but then say you're wrong about the specific issue, that we have an open 
chain of communication where I'm not told I'm wonderful all the time. This is a problem with being the president of anything. It certainly was a problem for Lyndon Johnson, you think, in, in, in the Vietnam War. He had to go all the way down to the undersecretary level, George Ball, an able undersecretary who voiced privately to Johnson his misgivings about the Vietnam War. But everybody up from George Ball was simply telling the president what he wanted to hear. And this is a danger because then he doesn't get good information and doesn't know the war is going horribly wrong because everyone wants to keep their job. Nobody wants to lose out in the pecking order. And if you tell the president what he wants, he's likely to invite you back. And access in Washington is everything. Better to have a corner, better to have a tiny office the size of a broom closet in the White House than a grand office next door at the old executive office building. Uh, because you're farther away from the president. Whereas with the broom closet, you might just have coffee with the president regularly, thereby having influence. That's the whole idea behind the National Security Council, which is lodged in the White House itself. They have increasingly more influence than the State Department, which is blocks away. And this is how things work. Um, this seems to be true for Zelensky, who, who's been encouraged in his messianic fantasies uh, because, of course, he got one big thing right. Early on in the war, he said, I'm not leaving. Um, I'm staying and we can stop the Russians destroying our country in a matter of weeks. And miraculously, this happened. The danger from this success is that Zelensky now thinks every problem, he uniquely knows what's going on and received wisdom, is wrong. That's one data point. One data point isn't really enough to base your entire life on. And yet that's what Zelensky is doing. So he, he's becoming increasingly messianic. Uh, the West lauding him to hysterical levels, Vanity Fair style levels, hasn't helped. And then he's surrounded by yes men, which is not the case of Zeluzhny, who's out getting shot at. And so when Zeluzhny's dragged in for a face-to-face -face with Zelensky, he has the backbone to, to say as a realist, look, I want to make the be world better, warts and all, but I have to see things as they are. And your advisors, what they're telling you about what's going on in the war is more positive than realistic. He was then asked to resign. This is a tremendous problem. The president doesn't want to hear bad news. Every leader of every institution, be they a business like mine or not. One of the great lines in The Godfather, Tom Hagen says, the Don wants to hear bad news immediately um, and in person. And I say the same to my staff. The minute that something goes wrong, I want to know. Don't not tell me. Always tell me. I can deal with bad news. I can't deal with not being told bad news. Zelensky, being a bad executive, doesn't want to hear this. So Zeluzhny gives him this bad news and he's asked to resign. He refuses to resign and Zelensky says he will then sign a decree dismissing him. Well, already we have a problem here. Signing a decree doesn't sound very democratic, and indeed Ukraine is not very democratic. They've decided not to hold elections this year using the pathetic excuse that they're at war. Why do I think this is pathetic? Because historically the United States, in the midst of a civil war that killed, that led to 600,000 casualties, had elections in 1864. They were not suspended despite a lot of people around Lincoln saying you should suspend them. The reason that Lincoln's advisors wanted to suspend uh, the election of 1864 was that bluntly he was losing. The war had gone so badly for so long that George McClellan, the bet noir of Lincoln, and really the one man in the Civil War everybody hates, uh, McClellan had become the Democratic nominee. 
He was for pursuing a peace deal with the Confederacy, which would undo the Union. And McClellan was winning in polling up until September 1864, when Sherman wins his vital victory at the gates of Georgia, takes Atlanta. And in taking Atlanta, although that's important strategically, it was important, far more important in political risk terms, because this meant the polling turned around. It looked like the North was going to win the war and Lincoln's numbers and electoral chances surged. But Lincoln didn't know that when he said, look, we're going to have an election anyway. What's the point in fighting a civil war to say Republican government is everything not to have Republican government? So I don't want to hear that Zelensky is fighting for democracy when he's refusing to have democracy. Instead, he's going to sign a decree dismissing Zeluzhny, but this doesn't work. This doesn't work. And the reason this doesn't work is that nobody takes his place, that none of the senior military officers went along and agreed to take over for Zeluzhny. They, they're four square behind him and his assessment of the war. Likewise, the United States and the UK, two vital supporters that Zelensky needs said, uh, we don't think this is such a great idea. Getting rid of your able realist military chief because you're jealous of him isn't a good look. And so Zelensky, at least up until now, has been forced to climb down. Uh, tensions between the political and military leaderships have been growing for months. Um, part of the reason for this, as I said, is, is jealousy, that Zeluzhny's approval ratings are higher than Zelensky's Polling that was commissioned a couple months ago, it's not clear who commissioned the polling, though rumors are it's Zelensky, I think it's Zelensky, have that in a runoff, Zelensky would only beat Zeluzhny if he were to run against him uh, by a couple points, two points. So it's too close to call in a runoff, and individually Zeluzhny's approval rating is higher than that of Zelensky. The other problem is that, they, that Zeluzhny says he's, he's really struggled to get time alone with Zelensky to talk to him on his own, that he's constantly surrounded by these groupies, by this phalanx of presidential advisors, and this certainly has led to a lack of trust between, between them. They haven't built a personal relationship, which does matter. I mean, I'm a realist that, that thinks Hans Morgenthau, one of the founders of realism, is entirely on the money when he says that there is a personal, psychological, almost Freudian element to leadership and that knowing each other and trusting each other um, is, a, is a vital part of things going well in a policy sort of way. I, I hearken back to that old style of realism. I think having in my own life and the things I do, that's certainly the case. And so Zeluzhny says, I haven't had a chance to really spend time with Zelensky because he's surrounded by his, his fanboys, by, by his groupies, and that this has been a problem. But beneath the jealousy and be, but beneath the fact that Zelensky fears Zeluzhny might be a political rival in the long run, a popular one at that, there is a policy difference. In a recent article for The Economist, and we've talked about this a little bit before, Zeluzhny broke ranks and spoke the truth, for which one almost always gets into trouble. I know this from Iraq, but one has to do this occasionally, as in Hilary Mantel's great book, The Thomas More Trilogy, at one point... Uh, Cromwell says to his son, you must speak the truth. They make it painful for you, but occasionally you must do it to be a man. And I think that's exactly right. And Zeluzhny did. In this case, he broke with ranks and, and the president's happy talk. And he said what has been true to me and what I've written about and not true to the cheerleaders for the war who have besmirched their intellectual rep reputations 
by wish casting people like Phillips O'Brien of St. Andrews, my old alma mater, who somehow thinks that he's no longer an analyst, but is a paid member of the Ukrainian Politburo uh, and has talked about in a happy talk way about how great the war is going and how vital it is. People like Andrew Mikta, who seems to think that Ukraine is everything, thereby throwing out any knowledge of geostrategy whatsoever. And worse, they've been wrong over and over again. They've talked about how great the offensive was going to be in Ukraine when it wasn't. After the failed offensive, Zeluzhny at least had the intellectual honesty as a realist and an able man, unlike these cheerleaders, to say um, the war is a stalemate, which is what we've been saying, as you know, for the past year and one of our, our calls for 2024. It's important to listen to people who are right, regardless of their politics. That is a base fact for our community. That's a fact for my business. I don't care about your politics. I care if you're right. Phillips O'Brien and Andrew Mikta have been proven wrong over and over again, as have, say, on Iraq and Ukraine and Applebaum, David Frum at all. If you're wrong constantly about the key issues of our day, um, it behooves us not to listen to you. That's how meritocracy works. That's how being right works. I'm interested in people who are right. I could care less if they come from the left, the center, or the right. I care that they are good at political risk. Zelensky is not good at political risk. Zeluzhny is good at political risk. And in the Economist article, he said what's been clear for a long time to a lot of us, or increasingly clear, it was clear to us first, and I have to give the firm immense credit here, um, as we've been saying it for about a year now, since we said the offensive would fail and why, and it failed. For those reasons, Russia learned lessons. They, they, they organized defense in depth. They mined the territory. It was a broad-based defense, and Ukraine could not burst through, which is exactly what we, would, we said would happen. Happened. Zeluzhny acknowledges this and says the war is a stalemate and is likely to remain so one for the foreseeable future. What he left out, though, I think that's, you know, that's quite brave talk. What he left out was stalemate favors the Russians. Why? They're more of them and they have more weaponry. They can call on their own weaponry. Not only internally do they have more weapons than the Ukraine, which is trying to create a defense industry frantically out of nothing, but they have more secure supplies to weapons from North Korea, Iran, and China in order to make this work as well. So... They, they have more weapons and more people, and they will for longer. That means a stalemate suits them to the ground as long as politically things don't go wrong. And there seems to be no doubt after the Prigozhin excitement that things aren't going wrong. Putin is going to coast to a, uh, shall we say, mandated election result. Um, and so things will stay as they are. Worse, from a Ukrainian point of view, that if Donald Trump is elected president and realists such as myself come to power, Aid will be cut. Now, you don't turn aid off. It's not binary. It's not like a faucet where you turn the water off and then everything is fine. Uh, but aid will be drawn down from the United States. And any notion that the Europeans are going to somehow pick up the military slack is a sick joke after having dealt with them for a generation. Again, my football team could take the German army. Let's be realistic here. I wish to goodness, and, and you know, if, if I have anything to do with Europe in the next administration, we should help them do better militarily, even if that means they sometimes do things we don't like in the United States. I'm certainly for that, to have them have a stronger military. But that's not going to happen tomorrow. And President Macron of France can give speech after speech, but Europe isn't going to pick up the slack. So the sooner we move away from the happy talk of Volodymyr Zelensky, and the sooner we listen 
uh, Valerie Zaluzhny, the better, because we should begin to talk about how the war can be wound down in a way that leaves Ukraine or what's left of Ukraine, because the 20 what's going to happen is there'll be some sort of armistice, probably. The, the solution is vague and nebulous at the moment, but seems to be coming into focus, that Russia will keep the 20% de facto of Ukraine that it presently holds, that Ukraine will not join NATO, whatever Tony Blinken says, nobody's going to allow for that. Uh, no Republican has lost its mind to that extent. Uh, no realist, certainly. And the Trump administration will be realist. Um, so that's not going to happen. But EU membership is on the cards in the nearest future, 10 years or so, for Ukraine. And so Ukraine, what the, what's left of Ukraine, uh, the 80% will be uh, rebuilt with German and European money. I think that's on the cards. We'll be given EU membership. Uh, the United States and others will train the Ukrainian military and give it more up-to-date weapons. It's a porcupine strategy. It's not that you trust Putin at all. You don't. But what you do is make is you is you make new facts on the ground. The Ukraine has increasingly a, a highly capable military. Certainly, it's proven itself to out to do better than anyone thought it would. You then, over time, give them better weapons, contacts to individual Western countries. Um, you, you have them join the EU. The Germans and others help rebuild the place, and then EU money flows in, and eight, the eighty percent of the country that remains Ukrainian moves along in this manner. Um, it doesn't have to uh, de jure give up its claims to the Donbass uh, areas there and and in Crimea, but de facto the armistice lines are the armistice lines, um, and that's going to be the outcome. The problem is at the moment. President Zelensky is nowhere near accepting reality. And so more people are going to have to die tragically. There'll be more offensives until he finally believes he's not going to win the war and reclaim every kilometer of Ukrainian territory, which he most assuredly will not. On the other hand, uh, General Zeluzhny seems to be heading toward the notion that there's stalemate. And in the stalemate, some sort of armistice deal has to be cut. So the good news in all this botched nonsense is that this is the first real check on the happy talk and delusion of Volodymyr Zelensky, which is dangerous for long-term Ukrainian interests and dangerous for Western interests. The Zeluzhny acknowledging stalemate and now not being fired for merely stating the truth is very good news indeed, and is the first step to reaching a negotiation which could end the tragedy in Ukraine and keep the vast majority of Ukraine free, quasi-democratic, quasi-capitalistic, but with a hope to have a future that is both democratic and capitalistic. So this is good news, um, indeed. The happy talk has to stop. Zelensky's delusions have to end as they're dangerous for the West and for Ukraine itself. But Zeluzhny, bravely acknowledging reality, is the first step to following Burke's dictum that to make the world better, we have to see it as it is, warts and all, and then move to make it better. And that's what we try to do here at the podcast and in our community every single day. Thank you very much. I was happy to do this one around the world in 20 minutes, looking at Zelensky's botched efforts up to now to remove his realist military chief and that this underlines his dangerous delusion. But the good news is, that it does seem that realism is returning, certainly to the Ukrainian armed forces, and a deal that will help the people of Ukraine, an armistice deal 
the first steps toward it lie in this botched effort to remove a man who simply told the truth. And that's what we will continue to do and continue to be right and continue not to cheerlead as we move forward. I'll be sure to talk to you Friday. We'll either do Europe um, because I love I love that the cheerleaders I, and I said this to Sarah, they'll find and John, they'll find a way to make zero growth sound palatable. And sure enough, the Guardian did. They said that's stable. This wish casting absolutely has to stop. And we if we want Europe to be a serious player, and I certainly do as somebody who has European children and lives here and cares about it, we have to acknowledge warts and all that it's the least of the great powers and see how to make it a better place. And we'll talk about that next Friday, probably, or this coming Friday. And if not, we'll move right on to the zombies and Odyssey and Oracle, one of the best concept albums ever made. For those of you who haven't subscribed yet, please do so. So many of you have, and we're incredibly grateful. And please do give the $70 that we're asking. This allows me to, to look at my partners who shake their heads at me and continue to do more and more of these as our numbers and Substack have gone through the roof. And we want to continue spending the time and effort to give you two or three podcasts a week, which I love doing. It's a great way for us to think out loud together. It certainly helps my work and is a highlight of my week, and I hope it is of yours too. If it is, please do give the $70 so I can look my partners in the eye and continue to give the, the community the time it deserves. And last thing, if you haven't written a review yet for The Last Best Hope, please do give us the five stars and write a review today. We're almost to our goal of 50 reviews. We're, I think, at 48 today, uh, which is great. We're about to get that algorithm from Jeff Bezos moving in our direction. Please do give Last Best Hope the five stars and write a review today. And if you haven't bought it, it's available on Amazon by 10 today. <laughs> Thanks very much. I'm going back to the builders now and a slightly less glamorous life. Take care and see you Friday.